So Money, episode 1288, Marriage and Family Therapist, Ed Combs. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I think a lot of times when we think about change, it's beyond just getting new ideas in our head. It's about creating new relational experiences, new places where we can be vulnerable. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We're discussing money and couples today. If you're in a relationship and striving to keep the financial peace, our guest today has a lot of experience helping couples do just that. Ed Combs is an internationally recognized thought leader in financial therapy. He's been cited by the Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, CNBC. He leads couples through therapy from financial despair and frustration into financial intimacy and connection using the latest in love and brain science. This was really interesting to me. We discussed attachment theories, how all of us grew up with some type of attachment, some are more positive than others, and how this shows up in our adult lives and in particular in our relationships, in the way that we relate with our partners around money was fascinating. I learned a lot about myself through this conversation, lots to think about and research. Fun fact about Ed, he used to be a firefighter now he's a financial therapist. He's the founder of healthloveandmoney.com, helping couples transform their relationships through learning, healing, and growing. Here's Ed Combs. Ed Combs, welcome to the show. Hey, Farnoosh. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. I think it's always a good time to talk about money and couples. And this is, <laughs> you know, from the experts. So we need all the help we can get. We're going to talk specifically about the root of the problem, really. We know that money can be contentious on a day-to-day basis, on an individual level. We don't want to face our financial fears, but within relationships, it can be a very sticky scenario for couples. And we're going to talk about why, but also, you know, what are some of the ways that couples are winning? When it comes to managing money in their relationships, we tend to focus on the failures. But I think there's a lot of couples out there that are doing well and you're coaching them. And so we want to get the advice. But I thought it was really interesting, Ed, to learn. uh, I don't know why I didn't know this earlier, but you were originally a firefighter turned financial advisor turned couples therapist with this focus on money. So tell me, take me back to those years fighting fires and... I love the metaphor that you use, which is that, you know, you're still navigating the flames <laughs> and walking everyone out safely in the context of marriage today. But what what uh, turned you off from firefighting or turned you more onto uh, financial advice? Well, you know, it's really this whole journey has been a journey of necessity. But as a young young guy, I got into professional firefighting. I wanted to help people. I now realize I had a bit of a hero complex. Maybe I still do. But you know, sitting around the firehouse, I'd hear the guys complain about their wives and money. And I kind of was like, ah, oh, that doesn't feel good. And I remember my mom being frustrated with my dad around money. And now mind you, I'm 19, 20 years old. So I still don't know a whole lot at this point in my life, but I just know I don't want that problem. So I started reading personal finance books. You know, one of the first books I read was like, how to buy your first house for dummies, right? Like that's because <laughs> I was ready to buy a house and I had a stable job. My interest in personal finance came out of kind of that need to just learn and figure it out for myself, listening to the guys complain, having someone coming around and helping with retirement accounts and 
explaining like, this is what a stock is. This is what a bond is. And I was like, okay, you know, just <laughs> completely naive and not knowing. So it's fun to reflect back on almost 20 years ago where I started out as a young adult and where I'm at mm-hmm. now. Were you able to buy a house? Did I the was, book help? Yes, I was able to buy a house. You know, I was living in Houston, Texas, and fortunately, it's a very reasonable cost of living. I had a very small amount of family money that I could use as a down payment that was supposed to go to college, but because I was a firefighter and the fire department would pay for my continuing college education, I was like, hey, mom and dad, can I use this money to make a small down payment? And they said, yeah. So at some point, you moved beyond just wanting to help yourself and wanting to help others in particular couples. Um, When did that transition happen? You went back to school, getting quite the education. Yeah, you know, I think it came on the heels of, I mean, obviously professional firefighting is a very demanding career. I was going through my undergraduate studies, growing and maturing, realizing I don't really actually want to go running into burning buildings anymore. I was starting to ask myself, what can I do in the future? I met my wife who was finishing up dental school and I thought, I had learned about now the field of financial planning and I thought, well, this will be a great way to help people and make a good living. Did you realize just how difficult it might be to navigate money with couples? It's one thing when you're working one-on-one with a client, but when you're in the room with two people, often with opposing views of differing, different backgrounds, how they learned about money, their value systems. Uh, what was that like in the beginning? Anything that you just mentioned was not even on the radar when I made this transition, right? I think I read some book about how to be a CFP and it talked about more about how to learn about investments and taxes and insurance. And so I thought, oh, of course, well, yeah, that's what I need to know. So that's where I got the CFP and the MBA. And man, I had, I'm laughing, but I had no idea what I was signing up for when I made this transition. And honestly, there's some days when I think being a firefighter was a lot easier than being a couples therapist specializing in financial therapy. Wow. Wow. So tell us about some of those fires that you initially turned off in in your first first years of practice working with couples. What were some of the things that kept coming up? I remember this one couple, and if they ever were to hear this, I would be, uh, I apologize. But, you know, I just... (laughs) They're sitting there, they were fighting about money and I was still like trying to figure out what it meant to be a therapist and not a financial planner and how do I bring these things together? And it was really around his spending. And, you know, what I realize now, you know, seven years later is it is what you talked about. It's his family history, her family history. I didn't even really know how to do a good family history around money at that point. And so, um, I think that, you know, but it was running into these roadblocks with couples and trying to figure out how to apply couples counseling knowledge and skills to couples financial life. And it took some time to get those things to really meld together in a more efficient process. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, being able to have a couple come in that first session is so much easier. And the couple often leaves feeling some hope, some renewed hope, right? You, You mentioned, well, we can identify where couples are going wrong. But oftentimes there's good things that are going on amidst the financial conflict and despair and frustration, Mm -hmm. but they lose sight of that because pain always outweighs pleasure. Yes. Yes. Well, you identified one thing at least, which often creates conflict in relationships when it comes to money. And that is how we grew up around money, our, our childhoods, our backgrounds, which maybe we don't do the proper understanding of our histories so that we can move forward. What are some of the other causes for conflict when it comes to money and relationships? Well, I think this is where I take a very unique approach is I really have come to love the psychology of attachment 
which is the study of how humans grow and develop and internalize a caregiving relationship from childhood, right? And so this field of study in psychology has been around for 60 to 70 years, plus or minus. So it's a really well-researched area. And what I see very consistently is those patterns of attachment bonding showing up in the way that couples relate to each other around money, right? So some part of relating around money in couples is about caregiving, is about creating safety and security. And that's the foundation of attachment, is feeling safe and secure in an interpersonal close relationship where there's an expectation that you will be taken care of, not just for what you do and provide, but for who you are intrinsically. And so that is a big shift that a lot of couples have to work with because most of the time when we think about money, it's because you've done something to produce and warrant having money. Mm -hmm. But in the intimate relationship, we want to be loved just for who we are, not for what we bring to the table. Now, of course, that's important and we're not disregarding that. And so when you have couples where there's disparate income or one couple, one person works, the other person doesn't, how does that influence the relationship and as far as how they see each other as taking care of one another? Um, I think this is going to open us up to a big discussion (laughs) maybe around, you know, income disparity, breadwinners, all of that. But what's your overarching thought on that? Yeah. So, and I remember years ago reaching out to you and, and getting connected around your book, When She Makes More, and that topic, you know, just so deeply resonated and continues to. And what I've come to appreciate is, right, in my own dynamic, I have an anxious attachment style. So, in attachment theory world, there's four attachment styles. There's anxious, avoidant, disorganized. Those are the more problematic or challenging attachment styles. And then there's secure, right? And what we're always looking at in very simple terms is, Attachment is about how comfortable do I feel with myself and how comfortable do I feel reaching out for support from somebody else and that they're truly there for me. So I know in my own marriage, right, my wife as a dentist, especially when I was coming out as a new financial planner, stepped into a great salary and I stepped into a zero income because it was a sales job initially, right? And so there's been this continuous income differential that's been very challenging. And in trying to wrap my head around that, realizing that my own psychology of anxious attachment, which came out of never really feeling fully secure in the caregiving that I received in my childhood and the way that it showed up and wanting to do it right. So remember that comment about mom being critical of dad and the way he spent money, that that fed into some of that anxiety around relational connection. Conversely, you know, as my wife is there, she has some mix of probably more the avoidant, secure side of things. So she's a little more distancing, keep things at an arm's length distance. So I couldn't really name what was going on for me internally. I just knew it felt uncomfortable. And she wasn't really prone to trying to draw that out. Mm-hmm. And so it's, wow. it's made it difficult to navigate. Now, over time, I've been learning and using the right communication skills to be more secure and less needy and vulnerable, but it still shows up from time to time. How do you reconcile with a childhood where you felt anxious attachment and now as an adult, you know, recognizing that, which I think is a huge step, but obviously this is a lot of conditioning, you know, how do you untangle from that, detangle from that? Well, the difficult answer and the thing that most people don't want to hear is usually... I'm asking for a friend, by the way. Yeah, right, right, right. Of course. This may or may not be me. Right, right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Her name is Molly and uh, she lives just down the street. Um, You know, I think the difficult thing is, 
the thing to understand is our attachment styles are deeply intertwined into our psyche, right? So it's not something that in two easy steps or three days you can get changed. It usually involves if you're on the more um, significant end of these anxious or avoidant disorganized attachment patterns is it usually does require some therapy with someone that understands attachment styles and how to do reparative interventions, helping people, you know, one is just being able to reflect and recognize I have this, that this is part of who I am and being able to work through the fact that I didn't choose to be this way and I'm not fully choosing to be the way that I am. Now I, I do have choice in trying to move towards more secure attachment. And the great thing is, you know, there are books out there, right? So that's a place to start. If you realize like, Oh, this is really getting the best of me getting into therapy or couples therapy can start to set the stage for you having new experiences. Because I think a lot of times when we think about change, it's beyond just getting new ideas in our head. It's about creating new relational experiences, new places where we can be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And so like the good news is I have been in my own therapy, continuing to grow and change and work on these patterns. And last night, my wife had some really difficult news to share with me about something that she was frustrated with, right? And in the past, I would have taken it very personal and become reactive and, oh, what does this mean for our relationship? But I could stay more present and just listen to what is she trying to tell me? Remember that this right now is more about her and not about me. But the person with the anxious attachment is more prone to make it about themselves because they want to make sure that they're going to keep the relationship intact. Mm-hmm. Wow. You are a financial therapist, which is, I think, the future of financial (laughs) advice giving, especially in a technology-driven world where we have now all these calculators and you can, you know, started with, you know, could read a book about how to buy a house. And and (laughs) now we have like, the computers can do it for us. Now we don't even leave our homes to buy homes. You know, we just (laughs) like, everything is so virtual. It's cutting out a lot of the middlemen. And middle women. However, I think that the future of financial advice, and you curious to hear what you think. Yeah. Like you're you're the future. I mean, this is this is it. People, you can't rely on a robot to walk you through your feelings. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think the good news Which is, is so much of our financial problems. It's eighty percent emotional, <laughs> mental. It is emotional and mental. It is those early learned experiences. There's two types of memories that people don't know that they have but they're called implicit and procedural memory. And implicit memory is the way that things felt during certain experiences, right? So you can remember that first time that your mom took you shopping for shoes and what did that feel like? Was it a joyful, fun, exciting experience or was it like, oh, a little tense, like I don't want mom to get mad at me for wanting the fancy shoes. Yes, that. (laughs) Right, yes, that one. Yes, that's me. Yes, I have that one. At Tom McCann at the Worcester Center Mall. Mm-hmm. That was a anxiety-producing trip always. Uh, Never right. got the shoe I wanted, but that's okay. That wasn't the point. That legacy and those shopping experiences leave implicit memories around what it feels like to shop and can show up in our adult life when we go to shop. And now you're an adult, you're making your own money, and you want to just go out and buy the nicest pair of shoes. But you still have that your mom boys show up. What are you doing spending so much money on those shoes? And you're like, wait, where is she? No, it's okay. It's in my budget, right? And then, or maybe you go the other direction and you like rebel. Could you, is that, is that possible? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's either kind of, and that's where we know we can start to recognize that we have some of the challenges is that we're locked into following the old voice that's in our head, that's our parent. 
that left us with that distressed feeling or we're reacting against it. And most of the time, this is non-conscious until someone teaches you about this. And then you realize like, oh, my behavior has a history and it's connected with experience and it is connected more with the feeling, especially because we want to remember children don't have the cognitive and reflective capacities that adults have. Children can't contextualize and say, oh, wow, you know, mom is really overworked. She's frustrated with dad. They immigrated from this country. They have, you know, all these other things going on. And this is really about her, not about me. But like, how cool would it be if children could do that? Right. But they can't. They're not going to be able to anytime soon. Not that I know of. But that's why we also can get stuck with a lot of these things that were about us, but really not about us from our childhood mm-hmm. and money. Is because as children, we can't contextualize or recognize that there's a difference between mom and dad and what they're saying is right or wrong for us and what may actually be internally true for us. We've spent a lot of time talking about the the mindset shifts that are helpful to couples as they navigate money. But what are uh, some of the real tactical things too that they can do? Um, I know that setting yourself up for success in your marriage and your relationship around money is also is about conversation and, and you know acceptance right. and patience and all of that but it also helps to have you know uh, transparency with your bank accounts and uh, <laughs> each person you know feeling invested and accountable right and so how, what are some of the the real tactical things that you find can be helpful so there's two that I'm going to offer one is on that communication thing, which every couple knows that they need to work on and probably every couple does, is to practice maintaining eye contact with each other when you're talking about your finances. Just become aware of how how long can you maintain comfortable eye contact or avert gaze, right? Because what happens is when we're not making maintaining eye contact with our partner during uh, intense, intimate conversations is our brain starts to go up and start coming up with all the past stories about who they've been, who they are, what they're going to do, what they're going to say, which may not actually be true for what's happening right now. But if you can look in their eyes and maintain eye contact with them, you can see where they're really at right now in the present moment. So that eye contact is really important in communication. The other very practical thing is oftentimes there's one person who's very future oriented in the relationship and one person who's more present oriented. And that makes financial decision-making really challenging because it's, I want to save for the future. I want to live for today. If you're that future-oriented, saving-oriented partner, part of what you want to see if you can try to do gently and kindly with your more present-oriented partner is ask them, where do you see yourself in the future? Can you imagine yourself at 65? And just starting to open up some of those questions in a non-judgmental, non-threatening way will help them start to move forward. Sarah Newcomb, you probably uh, know of some of her research, some of your listeners maybe. She's done some really interesting research on future orientation, future self, imagine future self, and level of accumulated wealth. Oh, yeah. There's been... um it was a financial institution. Maybe it was Merrill that did a simulation. They would age you. Yeah. Uh, and they, and then they found that in a study that people who actually could see their age progressed self mm-hmm. uh, were more inspired to save and save more frequently because it becomes less abstract. You in the future is becomes very real. That's right. And so that's what's really important is helping both people be able to imagine themselves in the future. It's not about wishing away today for the future, but it is being able to toggle back and forth between living in the reality of today and being able to see yourself together in the future. Now, this is also where 
for a lot of couples, it's just challenging because there may be a certain amount of relationship insecurity that says, I'm not sure I'm going to be with this person 5, 10, 15 years down the road, right? And if that's part of your reality, that's a big signal that you need to get into couples therapy and start working on your relationship health. Because your relationship health, if you can't see yourself with this person in the future, your incentive to plan for the future financially goes down. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. I also have learned that speaking to the generation above you about what they what they're doing now with their money or how they, what they wish they had known. Mm -hmm. I I remember speaking to a guest who was uh, inspired to save and get out of debt and save after spending a a week, a long period of time with his grandparents Mm -hmm. living with them and, and recognizing the, the work that went into their ability to retire. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not something that he had uh, really seen up close and personal. That's something also we can all do. If you have someone who's ahead of you, even just 10 years, 15 years, any advice for me? You know, I'm 15 years behind. Is there something you wish you had done with your money? Yeah, I think that that takes a lot of vulnerability and security to go there. But financial mentorship is a really important part of growing and developing your relationship, right? And Mm -hmm. so you can even look outside of your immediate family to neighbors or other community members and start asking those questions. And you know, I think by and large, a lot of people want to help the next generation come along. Like we're wired towards helping each generation progress. And so you can start to look and survey your social circle and say, who are the couples that we think are doing it well financially and ask. And this is that challenge too, though, right? It's because sometimes what looks good on the outside is not all good on the inside. So it takes a little bit of discernment and practice. And I think if people are generally comfortable with where they're at financially and they're congruent between what you see on the outside and what's happening behind closed doors, as in like what their net worth statement is and how they use money, they'll probably feel pretty comfortable talking about it. And there'll be a sense of authenticity there. Hmm. But, you know, if someone's maintaining the facade, you know, you got to listen for that. So many interesting uh, insights, Ed, you know, just, you know, making eye contact, all this psychological foundational stuff is is so important. And I'm, I mean, I'm taking notes because uh, I, this theory about attachment and the various types of attachment, my goodness, if, if, if you walk away from this interview, just exploring that pretty eye-opening, I think, for a lot of us. And not just how we kind of relate to money and money in our relationships, but so much of our lives. Are you finding that too, that when you help people with their money, it it translates into opening doors in so many other aspects of their lives? Those breakthroughs are everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, they are everywhere. And I think I realized somewhere along the way that I can't just help people with money. I have to help them with their mental and relational health, right? Like, I think it, there was this question for me was, what's really true about how the mind and how people work? And it sent me on this big journey and questioning. And I've landed in this study of attachment and attachment theory. And you're right, you could spend, I mean, there are people that spend their whole career researching this particular psychological phenomenon. Now, you don't have to do that. If you're listening, don't, don't freak out on me. There's plenty of great general audience books on the topic. But I do think I know that I had, when I first learned about attachment theory, a big like, nope, I don't want to hear that. Because it was very vulnerable because it meant that what happened in my family actually had a much bigger impact on me than I wanted to accept. And I know at least, I think for many Americans, we don't want to, we want to be individuals. We don't want to be impacted by our family. We want to be our own person. Mm -hmm. And the science of attachment basically says, sorry, too bad. Your brain 
and it is literally organized by your caregiving environment from a bottom up perspective. This is where the neuroscience really helps us to understand yeah. like how we grow and develop. So now, Ed, you have many offerings. Um, and by the way, congrats on everything that you've built in such a fast pace. I mean, we, we connected first when I was writing my book, When She Makes More. That was what, seven years ago? Yeah. Um, and you were just about to sort of, you're embarking on this journey and and so much has created so much in, in, the, in that time frame. You're obviously online, you have a book, you have a practice. Um, but tell us where should we turn to for the best content or for the, if we want to start somewhere with you, where should that be? Yeah, I think the best jumping off place is uh, my website, healthyloveandmoney.com. And, you know, from there you can find out about my book, find the social media followings, the newest course offerings. That's what I'm most excited about is, you know, now with seven years of experience and working with countless couples, it's like I have my primary ideas and activities I use with my pretty much every couple. And I'm packaging that in a program where couples can get the benefit of working through financial therapy without coming to see me. And they can do it in a self-directed way. There'll be some online learning you know, or community pieces. So if you like that kind of support, you can get that as well. But um, there's a huge need out there. And I envision some future day where couples don't have to st struggle and experience profound strife around their finances. And it's not about increasing your income or financial knowledge. It's about developing the skills and abilities to be with each other to truly be the intimate partners that you want to be and to feel safe and vulnerable and talking about your finances. And so that's, that's my mission. And it's, I, I feel so affirmed and grateful for your recognition. And it has been a whirlwind uh, to get here, but I'm, I'm very excited to be here and to have people like you that are on the journey with me to really transform the way people think about and relate to their finances. Well, I tell you, I appreciate anybody who can, who can teach me something new about money, having worked in this space for 20 plus years. Um, <laughs> it is so, you know, it's guests like you that uh, continue to make me uh, feel invested in this space and, and knowing that, you know, there's just so much more to learn. I'm going to pick up your book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, How the Four Attachment Styles Impact Your Financial Well-Being. I want to read more about that uh, for my friend. You know, I'll learn to relate to her. Um, right. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> I'd love to hear how Molly, how, how Molly thinks about that stuff. Ed Combs, thank you so much. Farnoosh, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ed, for joining us. His book, again, is called The Healthy Love and Money Way. His website is healthyloveandmoney.com. On Wednesday, we're going to talk about 529 plans. Our expert is Patricia Roberts, who's written a book about it, how she sent her son to college debt-free using the 529 plan. I know a lot of you are curious about it, even if you don't have kids, but you have nieces and nephews, grandkids, you're thinking about having kids, really important to download this information and just know some of the resources that we have to better prepare the next generation for college. Thanks for tuning in and I hope your day is so money.